we left Stephen just leaving his school where he was working and he has two letters from Mr DC which he has to deliver. There's no transition from that episode to this one because we find Stephen now on Sandyman Strand. If, if you look east, I suppose, it hasn't changed very much, but if you look back towards the city, it has changed quite a lot. But essentially it's a strand on which you can walk still, and obviously Stephen did. Why he's down here, we don't know. We can only assume that his first appointment is at the 12.30, and he has time to spare, and he has come onto the strand to walk. He's looking around him, he's thinking deep thoughts that I think most first readers won't uh, appreciate. I think this is one of the most difficult chapters to read. And its appearances become reality. And he does it that through sight. He looks at things and realises what they are. And he does an experiment then to say if he couldn't see things, he closes his eyes, and what would reality then be for him? And he listens. He realises that his hearing becomes more acute. He hears the the shells crackle under his feet, and he uses a stick to guide him. Stephen closed his eyes to hear his boots crush crackling rack and shells. You are walking through it, howsomever. I am, a stride at a time, a very short space of time through very short times of space. Five, six... The Nachinander. Exactly. And that is the ineluctable modality of the audible. He looks back and he's seen these two women coming down onto the beach. One is carrying a bag and he says that she's a midwife. Names her as Florence McCabe. This is Stephen just imposing a reality on these people, which is not necessarily true. They're just two women coming down onto the beach, one of whom has a bag. And he imagines that there's a misbirth in the bag, rolling around at the bottom of the bag, with a trailing navel cord. And, of course, this brings his mind onto how navel umbilical cords connect us all back to Eve. So he then imagines an umbilical cord as a telephone line Hello, Kinch here. Put me on to Edenville. Aleph, Alpha, Nought, Nought, One. Then he thinks of fatherhood. And then he wonders about the consubstantiality of the father and the son and thinks of all sorts of heretics, Arius included, who argued from different points of view about it. Having thought these deep thoughts, he then remembers what has he got to do. He has two letters to deliver. And he also has to meet Mulligan at half twelve. He wonders if he'll go and visit his, his Aunt Sarah's. She is married to Richie Goulding, who is his uncle on his mother's side. They have a son called Walter. Of course, Stephen's father, to say that he dislikes his in-laws is to put it mildly. And Stephen recalls how he mocks his in-laws. Sure, he's not down in Strasbourg Terrace with his aunt Sally. Couldn't he fly a bit higher than that, eh? And, and, and tell us, Stephen, how is Uncle Si? And he says he won't find what he's looking for there. 
and he said neither did he find it when he went to see uh, read Joachim Abbas in Marsh's library. Then he thinks of himself as a priest, and then misquotes Dryden's saying to Swift. He says, "Cousin Stephen, you'll never be a priest." Uh, of course, Dryden said, "Cousin Swift, you'll never be a poet." He remembers mockingly too his youthful holiness, which was mixed up with a, a burgeoning sexuality as well, which we are familiar with from a portrait of the artist. And then how he intended writing these series of books, which would be distributed all over the world. He is mocking himself all these times. He can't take himself seriously. Then he decides he has walked so far that he's passed his ancestors' house, and he decides definitely he's not going there. He turns towards the pigeon house instead, and he thinks of the French joke about the Holy Ghost and the pigeon. Of course, that's by Texel, and being French, he remembers being in France, and he remembers meeting Patrick e Patrice Egan there, Kevin Egan's son, who was a Fenian, and he's still pining for Ireland and uh, going to Freer and all yeah. the rest, and everyone has forgotten him here, yeah. and he, he, of course, is there lonely in, in Paris. Yeah. Stephen remembers getting a postal order from home, and then just arriving at the post, oh, he, he had no food. It was a weekend, I think, and uh, the door was just shut in his face, and they wouldn't catch the postal order. And, that. and he remembers himself as going out to civilise Europe, as it were, himself going out from Ireland as a missionary to Europe, just like Columbanus. And of course, the similarity between Stephen and Columbanus is that the records say that Columbanus strode over his mother's body in order to go away. And of course, Stephen went away, contrary to the wishes I say of his mother. Stephen, while he's walking, looks back and sees the Martello Tower. He thinks of the Martello Tower in San Nico, but of course, from where we're standing now, where is approximately where he would have been, and we're looking in the direction of the Martello Tower and Sandy Cove, we can't see it. All we can see is Don Leary, and of course Sandy Cove is beyond that. Across the strand from us is a replica of the Martello Tower, and this is what puts it into Stephen's mind, the memory of the Tower and Sandy Cove. Turning, he scanned the shore south, his feet sinking again slowly in new sockets. The cold domed room of the tower waits, through the barbicans, the shafts of light are moving ever, slowly ever, as my feet are sinking, creeping duskward over the dial floor. Then he thinks of past events which have occurred on the beach, the grounding of whales when people came out from the city, and this was in the Middle Ages, and hacked meat off the, the whales to eat. And he said maybe he was among them then, in spirit anyway, don't you know, they were his forefathers who did this. And then he sees a dog running towards him. He sees a dog dead in, in the sand, and the dog starts running towards him. And of course, he looks and sees that there are two people with him. They're cockle pickers and gypsies. So he remembers seeing a woman in the arms of a similar man in Fumbly Lane. And then he thinks of a poem and looks around for paper, and the only paper is the end of one of Mr. Deasy's letters, which he tears off and writes his poem. Then he lies back on the rocks, he looks at Mulligan's trousers and shoes that he has on, and is rather resentful of having that. 
The tide is coming in, he remembers the drowned man. Of course, this connects with Lysitas, which he taught in the school. He thinks of the corpse floating up. The two men outside the Martello Tower had been waiting for the corpse to float up, seemingly. Is it nine days? After nine days, a corpse floats up. Then a cloud covers the sun. And these always seem to be symbolic of something. I mean, the, the cloud, when it covered the sun in... That's in the first chapter. Yeah. He thinks of Lucifer and possibly lightning, I was afraid. He picks his nose, lays the result carefully on a rock, mm -hmm. wonders if so anybody is watching him. And then he sees a, he looks over his shoulder and sees a three-master ship going up mm -hmm. the river into Dublin. And that's it. Oh. A good summary. And uh, it takes place mainly in Stephen's mind. There's mm -hmm. some input. He sees things. He notices things. And... Uh, here, Joyce, in anyway, three rapid steps, three chapters, has moved from little glimpses of what we would call interior monologue or stream of consciousness that are turned on very mildly at first in the first chapter. Uh, there's more of in the second, and the third chapter is almost nothing else. So we move into Stephen's mind, and it's a very abstruse mind with all kinds of odd things he remembers that we don't. And again, if we don't understand it in a way, how could we? And again, the miracles or other that choice does uh, allow us to follow up to a point. Stephen is obviously good at expressing things. He also likes choice words. He likes old words, strange words. He remembers some gypsy language. Mm. They have their own cant, mm. I think it's called. Uh, uh, it's a lot of foreign languages here, more than in anywhere else. So we have obviously uh, Italian, uh, German, French, uh, Latin, a lot of them. Uh, but also odd words within English that he seems to treasure. And I would say one of the important things you do touched on it already is the, the relation between appearance, what we see and hear, and the kind of reality, and he at times gets very philosophical. The opening paragraph is really um, how can we know uh, that something is there except through the senses? Ineluctable modality of the visible, at least that, if no more, thought through my eyes. Signatures of all things I am here to read. Sea spawn and sea rack, the nearing tide, that rusty boot, snot green, blue silver, rust, colored signs, limits of the diaphane. But, he adds, in bodies, then he was aware of them, bodies before of them colored. How? by knocking his sconce against them, sure. Go easy. Bald he was, and a millionaire. Maestro di color che sano. Limit of the diaphane in. Why in? Diaphane. A diaphane. If you can put your five fingers through it, it is a gate. If not, a door. Shut your eyes and see. We don't quite know what's reality. Um, on a first reading, one might think that there is a visit to the Arnold, because you have a conversation. Mm. And, but we realize, 
either right away or afterwards that he is merely imagining how it would be remembering how it was just like as, as you also said these women i think he projects some story on, on them from the midwife's back imagining a misbirth which shows his strange relation uh, also to the woman but there's a, a passage that uh, has all kinds of feminine mother sisters uh, nurses nuns until we come to to eve but that's all in the imagination and it's often not quite easy to see what is real and what isn't or when stephen sees this dog running around he's a bit afraid of dogs we know that he projects onto this dogs all kinds of other animals as though the dog were changing like a calf like a, a wolf even a vulture even a panther uh, from morning mm -hmm. so that is this kind of mental transformation that makes this chapter both very intriguing and attractive but also in a way forbidding the dog yelped running to them reared up and pawed them dropping on all fours again reared up at them with mute bearish fawning Unheeded, he kept by them as they came towards the drier sand, a rag of wolf's tongue red panting from his jaws. His speckled body ambled ahead of them and then loped off at a calf's gallop. The carcass lay on his path. He stopped, sniffed, stalked round it, brother, nosing closer, went round it, sniffing rapidly like a dog all over the dead dog's bedraggled fell. As we know, it's a chapter where most of the readers that give up, give up uh, in, in this one because it, it's a bit hard to take and uh, one can only say then wait for the next chapter when things get conspicuously easier. And the other thing is you'll have to use notes at least unless you're as erudite as Stephen is and I doubt if Joyce was even as erudite as Stephen was. I mean, he wrote it, but he consciously wrote it and created it. I mean, this is, uh, to me, an obvious case of Stephen not being Joyce. I don't believe uh -huh. in 22 that Joyce could have been as deep and as philosophical as this. Yeah. He comes, pale vampire, through storm, his eyes, his bat sails bloodying the sea, mouth to her mouth's kiss. Here. Put a pin in that chap, will you? My tablets. Mouth to her kiss. No, must be two of them. Glue them well. Mouth to her mouth's kiss. His lips lipped and mouthed, fleshless lips of air. Mouth to her womb. Oom, all warming tomb. His mouth moulded issuing breath, unspeached. Roar of cataractic planets, globed, blazing, roaring, way, away, 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 away. While we uh, see Stephen as this very deep young man, and uh, almost impossibly erudite, <laughs> the poem that he writes isn't a terribly good one, I mean... <laughs> <laughs> uh, we don't really know what he right. writes. Uh, th that's an interesting thing. We have so many details of his thinking, mm. but a, a relatively complex thing like using echoes, sight, to compose into... Mm. <laughs> this is a complicated process, mm. and those thoughts we don't have. We have the result. So um, the act of composition, which is detailed very 
carefully the portrait, for example, mm. here is, is left out. Again, I say this to indicate that we do not have an exact, complete record of what goes in Stephen's mind. We have it in, in bits and fragments. Mm. Uh, Joyce doesn't tell us everything, otherwise the chapter would be endless. forever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but we sometimes have the illusion that we know every little thought of Stephen. Mm. And again, illusion fits into this chapter. Mm. Uh, what is real? How can we trust our senses? Um, and the fact that the mind adapts everything. Mm. And you once said misquotes. Now, it's of course an adaptation. Yeah, when you, but sometimes they remember wrong. In mm -hmm. fact, we generally remember wrong and misquote. <laughs> I mean, this is the norm. It's often regarded from a kind of professorial standard. Mm. Oh, it's misquoting, but that's the way. And I think Joyce focuses on the transformations in off and in the mind. How reality, there's some woman and you you, you give him a biography huh? mm. or you imagine a, a visit, mm. uh, things like that. So Joyce, I think, was more and more interested in what goes on in the mind. Hardly anything happens that's worth... He walks across the I mean, if, if, if somebody had now listened to you, uh, mm. the summary, and that's the great book, you know. It's obviously <laughs> not in in what happens, uh, but it's the combinations and uh, what it sets in motion in the mind. I mean, that is something, and uh, it was new, and it has some very beautiful and evocative passages. He turned his face over a shoulder, reared a garden. Moving through the air, high spars of a three-master, her sails brailed up on the cross-trees, homing upstream, silently moving, a silent ship. What is the significance of the ship going up the river? I mean, it's there, and it's so much there. Yeah. And, uh, well, his, his friend Frank Budgeon was speaking about this chapter to him and uh, said he had used a wrong word to describe the rigging of the ship, and Joyce said it was important that the way he had it. In the first place, Stephen is not a sailor. Mm. He, he doesn't have to know the exact mm. term. And we also know that Stephen and Joyce likes words combined with cross, cross-blind and things like that. Mm. And it has religious overtones. And I once looked into it, and cross is a nautical term, but in one occurrence, it's used for the cross. And there's a poem by Herring that is called the cross tree, and the poem is in the shape of a cross. So uh, this religious overtone uh, is, is there. And, and yes, but yeah. now you asked about what is the significance of, of the ship. In a way, the assumption is everything must have some significance beyond itself. But what makes you ask about that is precisely that the language, in a way, changes to very mm. elaborate, stylized uh, of a ship in choice words that are even extraordinary for this particular mm. chapter. And then the chapter ends. And as it turns out, that's the end of Stephen for a long time. So there's something new is, is coming. And everyone heaves a sigh of relief. Silently moving. A silent ship. That is one of these tiny possible links to the Odyssey, because at the end of Telemachus, he also comes back with the ship to Ithaca. It's a very tiny link. And this chapter shows something that Joyce does with, these hom with the Homeric uh, elements, let's call it this. Um, that he does not have any similarity of action. 
Joyce referred to the chapter as Proteus. He is the god of change. This is a very minor episode uh, mm. that Menelaus tells him uh, that he was advised by the daughter of the sea god to catch him and uh, ask about uh, his father. And uh, Proteus is the one who changes all the time. Uh, snake, water, uh, you, it's, it's very hard to grip him. And I think what Joyce took over, and it's quite obvious, is simply the motive of change, how things don't remain stable. I mean, that's where we're on the beach with the sand moving, the tide coming in. It looks always the same, or waves are always the same and never identical, that kind of thing that changes. And of course, the changes in the mind and all of that. So that is very strong. And that is, I think, something that helps us if, if we can see that. Also, how one thought leads to another. His feet marched in sudden proud rhythm over the sand furrows, along by the boulders of the south wall. He stared at them proudly, piled stone mammoth skulls, gold light on sea, on sand, on boulders. The sun is there, the slender trees, the lemon houses. Paris rawly waking, crude sunlight on her lemon streets, moist pith of falls of bread, the frog-green wormwood where matin incense caught the air. Belluomo rises from the bed of his wife's lover's wife. The kerchiefed housewife is astir, a saucer of acetic acid in her hands. In Rodos, Yvonne and Madeleine new make their tumbled beauties, shattering with gold teeth chausson of pastry, their mouths yellowed with the poo of flanc breton. Faces of Paris men go by, their well-pleased pleasers, curled conquistadors. Now we have seen Stephen through three chapters. First, among you might say his peers, then in a hierarchical order, and here he is quite alone. He doesn't speak to anyone. Now, we obviously know something. He is not living with his family. He thinks of going to his aunt. There is an aunt we also know that his own father and his maternal uncle are not great friends, at least. His own father thinks little of the other one. We know a lot about his thought processes, uh, what he's interested in. He, we also know that he has a strange kind of relation to women. It's always somewhat unpleasant when women women turn up. Once he said he caught in a whole tram, he called naked woman or something like that. He has some problem there, that's quite obvious. We also now know that he has been in Paris for a while. We also know that it was a telegram about his mother's death that brought him back. He also realizes, and that of course links up with the portrait that I say we may or may not have present, where he tried to to do great things and he was aware of the implication of his name Daedalus, like Daedalus the Greek inventor of flying who could do that great things and then he thinks I came back what is steerage passage, uh, yeah, steerage, New yeah, Haven, yeah. I mean the flying, and, and his father, hey, couldn't he fly a bit higher? So this kind of great ambition is reduced to very ordinary things and he had to, to come home. So certain things about him are, are solidified, so I, that I think that we would have a fairly good sense of a very strange person of, in a way, a brilliant interior way of formulating, and there are bits and, and things that do come together. He's quite unsure of himself in He's many ways. Yeah. <coughs> yeah. Uh, although he presents this exterior of being sure of himself, mm -hmm. he, yeah. in, in himself he's not. Blue dusk, nightfall, deep blue night. In the darkness of the dome they wait, 
their pushed-back chairs, my obelisk valise, around a board of abandoned platters. Who to clear it? He has the key. I will not sleep there when this night comes. There's also, by the way, uh, that he thinks he will not return to the tower. He's not going to go back to the tower. But at this stage, we don't know why he's not going back to the tower. The two people who shared the tower with him are quite pleasant to him. I mean, uh, uh, Mulligan has lent him money, given him clothes. Haynes is willing to make a collection Mm -hmm. of his sayings. Mm -hmm. And yet he seems to be bitterly opposed to both of them. And he is accusing them of putting him out. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's one of the little keywords you said, bitter. Mm. That comes right through, is bitter, allows bitter mystery. Mystery. Even that word, again, bite of it, has the bite in it. Mm. And bitter comes from biting something. Mm. Something is biting him, Mm. yeah? And we don't quite see the reason. Mm -hmm. Uh, The other thing is, again, at the end of these three Stephen chapters, and when you turn the page, uh, something is coming, a second part is, is coming, uh, we also don't know what, what's going to happen. What do we expect in this book? What, what's he going to do? I think one thing is quite obvious by that time, that the focus is on the small things, the microcosm, uh, details of observation or thought, and not obviously on great dramatic action. And I think we get used to that very soon. Mm. Again, I mean, Joyce Cleese shows us a complex character. Mm. And, I mean, we shouldn't be surprised that we cannot fathom somebody on the, the basis of 50 pages or whatever it is. I mean, mm. we are all complicated. Stephen is a bit more. In one way, we're not on the edge of our seats wanting to know what's going to happen next. Mm-hmm. It's a very yeah. great relief to go on to the next episode yeah. and find that we can read it quite uh, easily. Yeah. No, and it's quite obvious, I mean, for those who've gone so far, that Ulysses is a book that, like any good poison, you can only take in small doses. Am I walking into eternity along Sandy Mount Strand? Crush, crack, crick, crick.